Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Remote Real Estate Investor. I'm Michael Album, and today I'm joined by Tom Schneider and Jason Green, who's a flipper extraordinaire. Jason's a employee with Roofstock, and he's going to be walking us through what's involved with flipping properties and gives us some really great insight on things to look out for, as well as discuss some of the pros and cons associated with some of the various hold times. All right, Jason Green, thank you so much for joining us today. You're an employee with Roofstock. You have a ton of experience in flipping. I would love to pick your brain about what that looks like. Can you give us a little bit of background for anyone who doesn't know you yet, where you come from and, and what you used to do? Yeah, so Jason Green, I've been at Roofstock close to three years now. I've been in residential real estate since 2003. So in my past life, I ran my own fund for 10 years, mostly purchasing homes at the foreclosure sales, renovating them and either selling them to owner occupants, or at times we would strategically keep them and rent them out after renovating them. Sure. And so I'm just curious, how did you get into that to begin with back in 03? Funny enough, I was 18, just finished high school. I was managing a Italian pizza restaurant and going to junior college and was approached by a family friend of my dad's who had been investing in real estate with a couple partners in Southern California for probably 20 years at that point and asked me if I wanted to work for them part-time. So my schedule was I'd work for them for like four hours in the morning, I'd go to school in the afternoon, and then I'd manage the restaurant at night or on the weekends. So they were a fun, basically three high net worth investors. If you want to call them a mini family office, I guess you could. But they owned, some of the guys owned their own apartment buildings, their own rentals, but they basically pooled all their capital together and bought homes at the foreclosure auctions all over Los Angeles, Orange County, and and kind of the Inland Empire. So I started working for them, just filing and learning how to comp properties, learning how to pull title and and interpret title, doing the basic things. And Mm -hmm. after a couple of years of being there, you know, decided to drop out of school, got my real estate license, took classes that I thought were appropriate, like business and accounting and real estate courses and anything kind of business related and basically started working full time there and running all the day-to-day operations, all of our brokers and bidders and contractors and, and kind of ran ops for lack of a better way to describe it. You know, we would buy anywhere from 25 to 50 homes a month. So basically learned the ropes firsthand at an at early age. Sure. And then, so of those 25 to 50, you'd cull through and figure out, okay, which ones are we going to rehab? Which ones are we going to keep for our own rental portfolio? And which ones are we going to flip and sell? Yeah. So the partners decided which ones they wanted to keep because a lot of times they wouldn't keep them in the partnership. One would buy out the other two and keep them for his own. But yeah, I coordinated all the bidding, all the acquisitions, all the construction on all of our flips and then all of our brokers as well. We leveraged a lot of real estate agents and brokers to do our drive-bys and kind of analysis on properties. So we didn't have to maintain a a large staff to do that. So I worked day-to-day with all of them on what their target properties were, what their feedback was on those properties, you know, if they're occupied vacant and, and trying to get as many details 
on those homes as we can before we you know decide to purchase them. This foreclosure strategy, or excuse me, with buying at the auction, was this before 2008, 2009, or is this like right in the heart of it? Just give me a time context relative to when the, all the foreclosures were rolling through. So this was 2003 to 2007 when I worked for them. It was like four and a half years I worked for them. I left in 2008 and started my own fund. What timing? Yeah. Yeah. So that was interesting to navigate through. Ultimately, we only raised about a million dollars the first time out. I was 22 years old and didn't have any gray hair, like they say. So it was me and a couple friends. You know, we raised money from friends and family. We only bought four deals in a year, but even during the downturn and when the market was starting to kind of slide, we still did well on all four. But investors got a little cold feet kind of as that financial crisis kind of took hold. And so for for maybe someone who's a newer investor or has never done a deal before, can you give us a little bit of insight as to what a flip is or you know what, what makes a flip a flip? Yeah. So the underlying fundamentals of it is buying a home, typically distressed or deferred repairs and maintenance, and you're buying that home at a discount to what you think the fair market or after repair value is a common term people use, ARV. So you're building in kind of a margin based on what you think the renovations are going to cost and what you think the purchase price and the after repair value are going to be. So the bigger the discount you're getting to your ARV, the better, but really knowing what your construction costs are going to be. And then you're taking that property once completed and selling it on the MLS for someone to move into. I think the to dig in a little bit more into the foreclosure cycle, so just for those who are not familiar to it, there's a couple of different stages as with as an investor, you can buy a foreclosure. There's a short sale, which is before it hits an auction, where the owner is trying to sell at a lower price than their loan. And then there's the actual auction. And then there's an REO, which is it doesn't sell at the auction, but the bank sells it basically through the standard retail process. I love to throw these little PSAs out there for those who are not familiar. Jason, did you guys were just primarily at the auction at the midpoint of the foreclosure? Or did you guys do short sales? Did you guys do REOs? We did it all. And basically, what my fund turned into was a basically second branch of the investors I initially worked for. So they would bid at the auctions. That was what they knew. But I started the second division, which was short sales, REOs, you know, networking with banks, brokers, and really generating like an off-market access to properties. And, and, you know, for a quick dive on short sales, you you know, that's pre-foreclosure, like you mentioned. Um, Typically, those homeowners are approaching their bank in order to get the amount they owe negotiated lower so they can sell it. A lot of times those homes are underwater, meaning they owe more than the homes are worth. And then, like you mentioned, real estate owned REO is after the foreclosure, you know, the bank would be the seller of that property. They took it to auction. They didn't discount the price. You know, maybe they put out a $600,000 bid on a home that's only worth 500000 And, you know, so they end up owning that asset and then having to dispose of it. So we bought all of the above. I guess the one other flavor of it would be buying non-performing loans. Did you have any experience in diving into that pool? I never did. I had some friends that bought notes throughout the Midwest and converted them into rentals. It's an interesting business model, but we had so much inventory going. It was just never something we felt like we needed to explore. 
enough to chew on. And just uh, you can correct me, but my understanding of a non-performing loan is where you're buying that loan directly from the bank. And if the current owner continues to pay on that loan, great, you're, you're now basically a lender. But if they default, you basically got ahead of the whole foreclosure process and now you own the property. Is that right? Yeah, typically non-performing, you know, you'll purchase them at a discount to what the note value is. You may try to work something out with the borrower as far as a payment plan. But in a lot of cases, those folks end up foreclosing and then owning the asset outright. So Jason, a question I get a lot in the academy is, hey, this this property has been sitting on either Roofstock for a while or has been on the MLS for a while. No one's bought it. There must be something wrong with it. And it sounds like that's a, people have maybe a similar opinion of things that didn't get sold at the auction. So now it, the bank owns it. It must be junk. But you're saying maybe that's not the case. Maybe the bank just tried to get too greedy when they sell, sold it at the auction. I love a days on market question. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah. So, I mean, number one rule of thumb with days on market is it's a lot of times driven by the price. But that being said, it could mean that it's been in, you know, in contract multiple times and buyers found issues with the home. So, you know, the one thing to note about REOs is dealing with the bank, you don't get any disclosures or warranties. Mm. It's almost like the auction, it's buyer beware. They're not going to rep or warrant anything about the house because they've never lived in it, occupied it. You know, they don't know anything about it. They're not doing their own inspections. So that's something to, you know, kind of watch out for. You know, we bought plenty successfully and you still do get inspection contingencies and those things a lot of times. So if you are looking to go that route, just make sure you're getting contractors and people to really examine the home or home inspectors because the bank is not going to stand behind anything to do with the condition of the home or any kind of disclosures either. Sure. Similar to days on market, like we can see on the MLS, is there a time period that's like a, a ticking clock that someone can see how long a bank has owned a property, how long a property has been in REO? Yeah, you, sh- you should be able to see that on tax records. I don't know if, if you may be able to see that on like a Zillow or something like that, but with a little digging, you should be able to find out when that title transferred to the bank. Got it. Okay. You can also look at county records and and kind of see the timeline. And most of those are public as well. Okay. I'd like to, you talked a little bit about title and you guys did preliminary title research when you were buying at the auction. Any thoughts on the way that investors should be thinking about title within their various buying channels? You having experience buying in a bunch of different channels? Yeah. Title is an imperfect science. So I do recommend researching. It is always nice to go back to the last time a title company insured it and see what's happened since then. I've seen and we have researched homes where loans and things got recorded on the wrong chain of title because the recording number was one number off from what it was supposed to be. And when you pulled up that chain of title, you wouldn't even see that loan on there. So we got very good at understanding how those work and how to work with our title companies to identify those potential issues. But you know, typically a good rule of thumb is you look at the last full value transfer and what title company insured that buyer. And you typically don't have to go past that because you can feel good that that title company insured that transaction. But it's something you always want to be careful of, especially if you're bidding at the auction. 
because there's no take backs. There's no contingencies. There's no, I've seen people run away from the auction and not pay. (laughs) (laughs) You you can't find me. I can't pay for you. (laughs) You aren't going to be welcome back. (laughs) I'm going to reframe my question a little bit, just specifically in title as it relates to different channels. Now, the auction, you know, you're walking up with cashier's checks and you are like under the gun. Like once you pay for it, you pay for it. But yep. I would assume if I'm buying retail or off of roof stock or off of the MLS, I should be concerned a little bit less with title just because the lender is not going to let me close without a title insurance policy. And I would assume that would absolve my concerns around title and not thinking that I need to go into a dark, dusty archive to confirm the transfer of deeds. So I don't know. Am I thinking about this right way in that title isn't as much of an issue if I'm buying through a a more traditional? I agree. Yeah, it's a pretty safe bet when you're going through, you know, a transaction like that where you have title, you have contingencies, you have a lender. Like you mentioned, no lender is going to lend without a lender's policy and a title policy. Yeah, the auctions are where you really have to be careful. And I could share some horror stories there. Does any of that change with all cash buyers, Jason? No, not if you're going through a traditional transaction. I don't think that would change. Okay, great. So I was hoping you could kind of walk us through a timeline of what a traditional flip looks like. For someone who's interested, what are the steps that they need to check off on their checklist? Yeah. And I guess I'll just explain it from the auction perspective, how we kind of operated. Typically, the day before the auction, you obviously you have the list of all the properties that are going to go to sale the next day, where they're going to sell, what courthouse, and any kind of instructions. So typically, the morning of, we would refresh that list. A lot of times, sales get postponed or, or canceled or for whatever reason. We would send our brokers out to look and evaluate all those homes before we bid on them. That day, same day. Same day. There's this, I, I was involved a little bit too. And it, just to kind of touch on to Jason, there's this website called Foreclosure Radar. I don't know if you guys use the same one. And yep. yeah, it'd be nuts. They'd release what was being going to auction. And then just, you know, probably, you know, 50 different inspectors run out and look at the houses really quickly and try to, you know, peer in the window and being respectful of, of whatever's there. But it's just a funny, wild scene to think about. It's like, okay, here's the list. Off to the races. Go evaluate. Go! <laughs> so, well, sorry, yeah. Just, yeah. yeah, no, that's exactly right. And a lot of times our drivers and brokers would bump into people from other companies that we knew at the same house. Like, oh, you again. <laughs> like, <laughs> But yeah, trying to peek in the windows. They're talking to neighbors that they may see, like if they know anything about the house, trying to get as much information as possible. There's no inspections or entry unless it's, abandoned. And we got into some homes that were vacant and we're able to kind of see inside and get a better idea. You know, we're researching old listings. When's the last time it sold? What were the photos like? What was the condition at that point? I also had a runner that would go check county records, see if there are any permits pulled, any additions. Our brokers would usually call out what they thought was an addition on the property. And we would have runners go check permit records and see if there were any legal additions or, you know, if there's a hassle that we're going to inherit of a non-legal add-on to the home. We were very diligent. So, you know, we get all that feedback. We gather that. We come up with our go-to, you know, bid-to numbers and say we buy that one of those homes that day. Depending on if it's occupied or vacant, we're typically filing a three-day notice to get possession of the home. So that kind of varies what the timeline is. You know, a lot of times we would 
try to help people move and give them cash in order to expedite kind of that possession timeline. Jason, I have to ask, at the auction, is there that guy going, do I hear 50, 55, 55, do I hear 60, 65? It's not quite like that, but yeah, there's auctioneer. You know, one of our colleagues, Mark, used to do that all over the country. It's not quite like how they make it look, but yeah, there's a real there's a real auctioneer reading off these properties and people are bidding a hundred, a thousand more and yeah, it's similar. And it's like, if I remember, they don't actually say the address at the auction. They give like a loan number and, you know, you have to like cross or cross. I don't know, maybe it was just Contra Costa County where we were at, but it was... Uh... Sometimes they'll just read like the parcel number or like some other identified number. All the auctioneers are kind of different or a lot of times whoever the trustee was who was processing the foreclosure, they would have their own identifying number. And a lot of times they would just read off those and you would have to go into your notes and make sure you're talking about the right property. Um, And be darn sure, yeah. How about, uh, sorry, I think this is just super interesting. What about things you found in the house? Any interesting things of, you know, it's kind of like storage wars where you you have a good idea of what you're buying, but it's not totally, (laughs) totally sure. I'd love to hear any fun anecdotes about you open the door and it's like, oh, I didn't realize I was buying this. Both good, good, good and the bad. I'd love to hear any stories you have that are rated, I don't know, PG-13 or whatever. <laughs> yeah, there's a few. I mean, we've definitely had our share of homes where we got possession and they had stripped everything out of the home. Kitchen cabinets, appliances, found weapons, drugs, all sorts of different things. We've had somebody pour concrete down all the pipes before. Oh, no. All the plumbing. Storage wards from the upside down world. (laughs) One of the most interesting ones I think I've seen is we've definitely found some homes where there had been a death or something that we didn't know about, which becomes a disclosure issue once you know about that. I've seen people buy down homes that were burnt down. They didn't know. There's all sorts of interesting scenarios that we've come across. Wow. No positive? Like things down like, oh, a, a new boat or a new car? Or, you know, I don't know. I bought a probate in a nice part of the Inland Empire. It was Redlands is the name of the city. And the guy, I had gotten in with a probate attorney. So they would send us kind of their leads when they inherited property to dispose of. And you know, the home was really dated and he had owned it for a long time. He had actually owned like seven different homes throughout the area. And it was this really nice community up in the hills. And his daughter was still loosely involved. And my contractors ended up finding a safe cut out into the slab in the garage. Um, And there was over a million dollars in cash in the safe. You know, technically, since we were the homeowner, we could have claimed right to that, but we gave it to his daughter. But yeah, it was hidden in a false kind of concrete slab dug into the foundation, into the garage. And daughter had no clue about it. Wow. No clue why her dad had that money there. But yeah, our contractors, you know, after clearing out everything and helping them move stuff out and, you know, stumbled across this safe buried into the foundation slab in the garage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it was very interesting. Okay, to change gears to get back into the flipping process, how do you decide what scope to do? And walk us through a little bit about that process and as well as timing. Yeah, let's just say for not being able to predict if it's occupied, getting someone out that it is vacant. I mean, we're day one with our contractors in there, you know, drawing up the scope, 
what renovations we're going to do, what our budget is. So we're day one digging into all that, you know, getting our HVAC guy out there and really kind of dialing in what we're going to do to the home. And usually we'd involve whoever our listing broker was going to end up being in that area. We used to do that pretty territorially. So we wanted market experts and, you know, they had their input on what we needed to do to the home to get the price that we needed to get. So we, we would usually walk through with our listing agent or broker, with our contractors, and really kind of dial in what that scope is, you know, day one. We're changing all the locks. So we're getting our field services guy out there to change all the locks and secure the home as well. Putting bars so that windows can't be pried open or sliding doors can't be pried open. And really buttoning it up and securing the home, you know, making sure there's no gas on or all those, any type of thing that could harm the home once we take possession. And we're really diving straight into it, you know, trying to get that rehab done as quickly as possible. We always shot for 90 to 120 day hold time. So it's not a really good, hard, fast rule, but we wanted $1,000 a day. So if the budget was $30,000, you know, that's going to take 30 days to do the rehab. If the budget is $10,000, it should only take 10 days. That's kind of the standard we tried to hold our construction crews to is the time it takes to do a job should be directly correlated to how much work you're doing and what the cost is. It's not a perfect science, but that's kind of what we try to hold to. And, you know, we would incentivize them to beat those targets. You know, we didn't use leverage much, but, you know, it's all about cycling the capital, especially if you're using short term, you know, private money or hard money. It's all about hitting your timelines and not paying more than you have to for your debt. So who do you typically try to sell to? There's renters, there's owner occupied. And with that, do you do anything unique with the marketing process? Almost always on our occupants, you know, unless we bought like a duplex or, or something like that. We did buy a couple commercial buildings. So obviously those went to like business owners. So a little different strategy there. But, you know, typically we would actually have our brokers or listing agents put signs out while we are doing the construction. A lot of people don't want to bring attention to themselves, but we usually pulled permits on all the work we did. So we didn't mind. So, you know, a lot of times people will target a specific area they want to live in and we'll drive around and look for potential homes to buy. So we would tend to have our agents get their signs up even while we're still working on the home. Uh, I can't tell you how many times my contractors let a potential buyer walk through the home you know, while they were working on it to get a kind of sneak preview. And there were times where we could put homes under contract before we even finished. And if they were real solid, we could even let them have a little influence over some little finish and touch items that they wanted. Do you guys run into non-permitted additions often? And if so, how do you typically treat that? Can you walk us through an example? There were times where we found additions that weren't permitted that were done in a really workmanlike manner. And we would actually be able to add quick value by going and getting them permitted. Now, if you decide to just leave it as is, the only real way you're going to get in trouble is if code enforcement stops by and tags your property for that or a neighbor calls. Like The only ever times we ever got in trouble were code enforcement driving by or a neighbor calling because they're upset that there's construction going on. So, you know, those are really the, the major cases where we kind of got caught up with 
code enforcement, but we were always pretty above board. Certainly, you know, it, it can be a quick way to add value. We got very targeted at buying homes that did have non-permanent additions and with very minimal work, ripping out parts of the walls, making sure everything was done properly, getting code enforcement out there and pulling the permit for it. It, it didn't cost us very much. I can think of a home we did in Orange, uh, California. There was a 500 square foot addition off the rear. It was all done pretty close to legally, but they didn't pull a permit. So I was able to get a discount on that home because of that. And my guys went and ripped out all the drywall, retrofitted what need to be, you know, per current code. We pulled a permit. We got the, the permit department, you know, inspector out. And we got it signed off in a matter of a few weeks. So we took that home from legally 1,500 square feet to over 2,000. That's real value to the home. We didn't have to add it from scratch. It was not that hard to do. Related to this, with a buy and hold strategy, and then if there's some potential permitting, say you get an appraisal done and you're buying the property as a 4-2 and you find out that it's a two-bedroom and your plan is just to buy and hold this for a long period of time. Assuming that there's no safety or habitability and the rooms have a closet and open ingress or whatever to make it, you know, rentable, are there risks in not doing the permitting work and just having the property, you know, function as a 4-2 without doing, I know when you sell it, there's going to be benefits in having it permitted in that people will be able to get financing on those extra, but just holding it as bias hold and kind of punting that down the line. I'd love your input on that. Yeah. And it's funny. I've actually had appraisers count square footage that wasn't technically legal. Mm. So I've seen it firsthand that appraisers did give us credit for it. So I don't think it's necessarily a must if you're going to hold it, but you do want to consider what your exit strategy is for that property and that you may down the line have to bear that cost. I don't think it should be like a, you know, immediate deterrent, but you know, you do have to consider what your strategy is and what that may cost you later. So before you get started, what would you recommend getting in place before completing a flip? I would assume financing is an important part of it. Yeah, I mean, you got to have the capital and the and the financing lined up. That way, if you do come across a good opportunity, you know, you're ready to strike. I wouldn't want to go find a really great deal and then try to throw all that stuff together because that means other people are probably looking at it also. So my opinion was always, you you want to be ready to strike when an opportunity hits your plate. So I would suggest starting with getting your equity and financing lined up, and then you can start figuring out ways to come across good opportunities. Is it common to use conventional financing for flipping and renovations? Not typically. Now, if it's like a light fix and flip and it's a financeable home in its current condition, I think you can. You know, FHA also has some renovation. I think it's called a 203K, a renovation loan. So that's something to think about. Most folks I know are using kind of private or hard money, for lack of a better term. A lot of those loans will be like six month term. So, you know, it gives you time to go in and do the renovations and, and get out of it before your, your loan matures and you have to extend it. Are there any restrictions that you've run into around flipping distressed or foreclosed properties? Some of the foreclosure clauses have a 90 day maturity that you can't flip the home within 90 days of acquiring it. That's really the only one I know of off the top of my head. What would you define a short-term flip? Like what amount of time? 
Uh, for me, short term is like six months or less. Medium term, I'm thinking, you know, maybe 18 to 24 months. And maybe that's like a house hack where you're actually moving into the home and doing the renovations and then reselling it once you're all done with it. I know some people who do that. And then long term, in my opinion, it should be five years plus. That's the kind of horizon I'm looking at if I'm looking to acquire, you know, a long term rental or even my personal residence. Like, that's why I was a bad broker is because I gave people too honest of advice. Is like, if you don't plan on living in this home for five years and you're banking on it going up in substantial value in two to three years so you can move up and buy a better home, that's not the best strategy to bank on. So even for your personal residence, in my opinion, like if you're not looking to be there long-term five plus years, it, it may not be that good of a decision. So two questions for you, Jason. One is, you know, why might that not be a great strategy for folks if they don't plan on being there five years? And two, what would the alternative look like? What should someone be doing in that instance? And, and the reason I say that is because I, I met a lot of clients and, and most of them were family and friends. And mm-hmm. a, they were looking at a strategy of, well, I can't quite afford to live in the area or buy the home that I really want. So should I just buy something now to buy it? And two or three or four years from now, I'll have $200,000 in equity because the price is appreciated. And then I'll be able to get my dream home. Mm. I just personally don't like that strategy. I don't think you should settle when you're making that big of a commitment, especially when it's your personal residence. So those were a lot of the conversations I came across. It's like, you know, I'm just going to buy something to buy it. And then three years later, I'll make hundred grand and then I'll go buy a better house. I know people have done it and it's worked just because of mar- market cycle and timing. But I just don't like that as an overall strategy when you're making a 30-year commitment and putting in cash out of your bank account to make that kind of decision. Sure. And so is it also fair to say that if your house appreciates hundred grand, your dream house probably is also appreciated hundred grand. So it's going to be a little bit more expensive. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that home you thought you could get for 500 as your dream home may now be 650. So right. your situation hasn't necessarily changed when you employ that strategy. Right. Okay. And then so what should people be doing as an alternative then would either be go buy something that they do plan on being in for a long time or renting? Is that Are those kind of the two schools of thought? Yeah, if they're really chomping at the bit to own an asset, I would recommend starting with an investment property. If you really can't afford the home in the area or the neighborhood you want, that you could really see your family settling in long term. I would say keep saving cash. If you find a good opportunity to buy an investment property, maybe explore that route and continue renting for the time being. I just don't personally believe in like, not being a renter at all costs. Rent is not a four. I mean, it is a four letter word, but it's not a negative word. Yeah. Like for me personally, I'm, I'm 35 almost. I'm single. Like I don't necessarily need to own a home at all costs by myself. Like if I was 35 and had a young family, my opinion would be different of that. Like I would be thinking, you know, it probably is a better idea to have a house that we own than live in an apartment. Situational. That makes sense. Yep. Totally. So, you know, I'd be curious, do you have any, do you have a personal portfolio going right now? Right? Yeah, I was curious. Yeah, I own about 35 or 40 homes with some partners. 
I'm a very small percentage and I really have no hands-on with the day-to-day of it. We bought most of the homes in 2009 at the auctions. And you know, at that time, we decided to just debt service them, basically break even debt service and rent them out. At this point, they're probably worth two times what we paid for them, if not more. Amazing. So we have no plans of doing anything with them, but it's really, you know, I I try to stay out of it as much as I can. Yeah, just let them run. Nice. Yeah. All right, Jason. So with our guests, we go through a round of quick fire questions. This is an either or. Are you ready for some quick fire questions? Let's do it. All right. First question, consolidation or diversification? Uh, Diversification. High property taxes or high income taxes? High property taxes. High rent growth or low vacancy? Low vacancy. Cash flow or appreciation? Cash flow. Debt or equity? I was always an equity guy. Always an equity guy. I like it. Safe play. All right. Local or remote? Yeah, you know, I always did local, but California, it's, it's hard to say that these days. So if I were to go out right now, I would say remote. Single family or multifamily? Single family. Turnkey or massive project? I love the project, but I would say experience beware. (laughs) Yeah, fair one. All right, final three, not necessarily real estate related. Midnight oil or early bird worm? Early bird. Text message or email? Text. And the last question, olive oil or butter? Olive oil all day. I like it. You did it. You got through it. Excellent. Jason, thank you so much for, for being on with us today. Truly, again, Tom, another self-serving episode. Yep. Really insightful, really informative, but, but wanted to thank you for taking the time. So looking forward to, uh, to catching you again soon. Yep, of course, guys. Have a good one. Thanks, Jason. All right, everyone. That was our episode for today. A big, big thank you again to Jason. Super informative. Lots of meat to chew on. Any flippers out there? I highly recommend you rewind this episode and listen to it again. Before we let everybody go, I've got Tom Schneider here who's going to say a quick word about the Roofstock Academy. Thanks, Michael. Roofstock Academy is a comprehensive program with over 50 hours of lectures, a year of one-on-one coaching with the likes of Michael and myself and some of our other great coaches, as well as a tool book, including interview questions, including pro forma models for building a portfolio, for analyzing a property, for doing asset management, property management, all of these different tools. It's a comprehensive program that's listed at $1,250. However, you have a lifetime satisfaction guarantee, full refund guarantee, as well as a $750 credit. If you do decide to buy on Roofstock, you'll get $750 back at the end of your close. To make this even a sweeter deal, we are offering our podcast listeners a special discount with the code podcast to receive $100 off the Roofstock Academy enrollment. And just to look at the numbers one more time, the program is $1,250. You get $100 off with the podcast code, and then you get an extra $750 back in your pocket if you do decide to buy with Roofstock, all coupled with a lifetime satisfaction full refund guarantee. Visit us at roofstockacademy.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts and feel free to subscribe as well. We'll see you on the next one. Happy investing. Happy investing.